Hello, Carol. There Hello, you go. Carol. <laughs> Hello, Carol. Hi, Army. Hiya. I'm great, thank you. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Justin gets all technical with this stuff. He's right. some sort of technical whiz. This is what I've heard. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, yes. It is. If, if only you let me listen to the distillery, I would come up with a, 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 a global new renaissance in whiskey. Probably not, but there you go. I'll give it a word. Now, we, we're joined by, now I've been looking forward to talking to this woman for quite a while now. Um, she has, she, I suppose in some ways, there's there's not that many sort of sexy jobs in, in historical terms and archivist jobs. And but she has one because Carl Quinn is in charge of the Jameson uh, Archive. Carl, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marty. I've been described now as having a, a couple of things, but never never a sexy archive job. So no, but it kind of is, you know. It, it's an interesting job. That's what we'll say. It's an enviable job. Enviable. Job. If yeah. if Marty builds it up anymore, Ellen Musk will want to buy the archive. Ah, that's so a bit. better not. I suppose you know, like, if he made me an offer, I'd I'd have to consider. <laughs> well, he seems to be making lots of offers these days. Um, uh, world hunger and now Twitter. He just pays cash for them as you do. Forty-four billion. Just write a check. Now, Carl, explain to us the the, the Jameson archive spans. Mm-hmm. What you take is it's about two hundred years worth, is it? Yep, absolutely. Um, I'll I'll pull things back a bit, Marty, um, okay. because I think for some of the viewers, they mightn't have come across an archivist before. Okay. So I think I'll start just by explaining what the job and the role is and how you get there, because <laughs> I think people like to know that. Um, so so archives really are the raw materials of history. Mm-hmm. They're the records generated by either companies or individuals. You know, yourself and myself, the letters we might write, um, the bills we receive in the course of, of a business, it would be all your administrative records. Yeah. And they are preserved then for their information value. They no longer have a role in the running of a company, mm-hmm. but we keep them because of the information that they contain. And a good example of that would be, say, the wage books from the historic Jameson Distillery in Bow Street. Yeah. You needed to keep a wage book because you needed to know who was on your books. And you know, man's interested in those. <laughs> yeah, a lot of revenue records. Um, and you need to know what everyone's paid. So there's an ongoing need. Now, we keep those because they're of huge genealogical interest. There's people all over the world who had relatives who worked in Bow Street, and we keep them um, for that information. So that's what archives are. And um, an archivist then is the person whose job is to manage the physical custody. So that's looking after something Uh that is by definition unique. Because there's not, now unless you're being very cagey with the revenue, there's not going to be two sets, we'll say, of, of wage books. <laughs> you don't write two sets of the same letters to somebody. If he, if he, was, running a, if he was running a business, there'd be definitely two sets. I yeah, I, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting a vibe from Justin, all right. <laughs> that, that could be interesting. But um, so there's a physical looking after items which are unique and completely irreplaceable. Yeah. You know, that, it's not... Sorry, it's not like you drop something and, and you can go out and you can buy a, a replacement. No. I, I, I said there's 200 years worth of records mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. including um, everything from the run, basically the running of, of a big industry. Yeah. So, you, so you have, obviously that's a, a bulk of a huge amount of, of data and paperwork and letters and so on. Where do you start? How do you, how do you categorize well, this? 
uh, th that's the archival training. Um, and in Ireland, you do an MA in UCD and it teaches you that archival administration. And the, the main thing, and this will just break all your hearts, is when you're going through the items, the main thing is don't get lost in them. Don't start reading them. And wow. this is the difference yeah. between <laughs> professional archivists and I'm <laughs> going to say amateurs. You can get lost in reading it. You open a minute book and for the purpose of an initial catalogue, you just need to know the covering dates. You need to know the type of information contained there. But if you're not focused on that, you'll start reading every page. Yeah. And a year will go by and you'll be no closer <laughs> to having any sort of catalogue or any sort of handle on the collection. So it's a bit like eating an elephant. You know, you do it yeah. in little bits. You take yeah. a bite at a time. So for something like the, the Jameson archive, which um, the, the vast bulk of it, there's some 18th century material, but the vast bulk is 19th century mm -hmm. administrative records. And like I know you're already thinking, oh, fantastic mash bills, you know, everything like this. There's a lot of receipts for coal and there's, <laughs> there's a lot of sales reps expenses, you know, and you need to kind of go through that, yeah. <laughs> acknowledge yeah. it. But then no, you're taking the shine off that for me about Coral. You're taking the shine off that's you know, like, the romance of it. Yeah. But Carol, listen, you're bound to have looked through it, right? And say you look through it and you discover inconsistencies. What do you do? Who do you, who do you bring that up to? So say, for example, you, you had receipts for a thousand tons of coal mm -hmm. and you knew a thousand tons of coal could make uh, uh, 10,000 barrels of whiskey but you only made 5,000 barrels of whiskey. Where did the other 5,000 barrels of whiskey go? Have you ever discovered any inconsistencies see, like that no, in the archive? Th this is an interesting point because that's not the job of an archivist. Mm, right. Um, my job is simply to preserve the material and to disseminate the information that's in it. It's up to a third party then, more usually a historian, to interpret right. and yeah. to okay. do all of that. So the, the job of an archivist is really the preservation and the dissemination, but it's not actively the interpretation. Now, as yeah. part of my role, I do like to share a lot of the information and some of the stories because there's such, as you know yourself, such a wide audience who are really interested in the history of Irish whiskey. And we're the only distillery that has its own archives and has an archivist on staff. So I think it'd be a bit mean <laughs> if I didn't <laughs> if I didn't share some of the stories. <laughs> now, in terms of preserving the archive, mm -hmm. that obviously has its own challenges because you're dealing with probably quite fragile material for, you mm -hmm. know, some of this 200 years old paper-wise is obviously quite fragile. So, so what, what's the process? Do you do you digitise it or do you get it on electronically or is it preserved in, in some other way? Well, the first thing you have to think about is where you're actually going to physically keep the material. Mm -hmm. And I'd say this to anybody, you know, who's watching at home and you might have something, letters belong to your parents, your grandparents, you might have some photographs that, that you quite treasure. Yeah. Um, you can make a digital copy that won't preserve anything, um, that doesn't preserve the original. And there is nothing like that tactile experience of, of handling something that somebody last touched yeah. 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Um, when you scan it or digitize, what happens is you create two silos. You create the physical one and then you create a digital <laughs> one. And we'll refer to Justin here, maintaining yeah. <laughs> millions of digital scans is no fun. 
So the first thing to do is you you think about where things are being housed. And if you're doing this at home yourself, what I'd say to people is um, people very often put something precious into those, you know, those plastic sleeves that you get for ring binders. Stay Mm -hmm. away from those. Plastic degrades and it'll stick to the paper. And when you try and take out your your precious letter, the ink will be left on the plastic. So don't do that. Okay. Don't don't put it in a brown envelope and write on the front Granny's wedding photograph because the next time you open it, it's going to be a ball of acid. Um, Try, ideally, is just put something away in the dark. That is the best thing that you can do. And for Irish distillers, in 2013, we converted the distiller's cottage in Middleton. Yeah. And from the outside, it's a beautiful Georgian villa. It still is a beautiful Georgian villa. But inside, we created five strong rooms. They're all temperature controlled and they're all fully humidity controlled. And all the beautiful windows have UV filters on them so that the daylight coming in isn't going to cause a reaction to anything that the yeah. day, that the sunlight might fall on inside now in the strong rooms there's obviously no external light whatsoever mm-hmm. um so it is built to international museum standards so that's your first tip keep wow. away from the damp keep away from the light and the thing that causes most damage is people yeah you know, so, so it's not not is that not just sort of it, that's, yeah. that's sort of it's got a rule for life um you want to Keep things flat and not folded. And again, this is is a tip for anyone at home with an old letter, because every time you unfold it, you're, you're moving that crease almost like a hinge, yeah. And you're you're, you're going to uh, weaken it. So keep things flat. Try and keep them in the dark and try and handle as as little as possible. Now, there's specialist um, storage equipment that is acid-free folders and boxes, and mm-hmm. that's what we would use. And do you use? Um... Do you have like, uh, you know, those humidity boxes to keep, take any moisture? We do. Um, Dehumidifiers, we do. Yeah, we try and keep everything within a recognized range for paper. Now, um, the archive as well, as you can imagine, it isn't just paper in a distillery. Uh, We have a lot of bottles. (laughs) So uh, there's a separate room for the bottles because, again, you'd have slightly different storage needs. Yeah. Well, I assume... Does the glue, you know, whenever the labels put on, does the glue react over time with the paper? It, or does that uh, no, it, no, but if it's kept in too dry um, a condition, it'll actually um, degrade and your label will just pop off. It will just Uh-oh. literally pop off, I'm, which isn't great when you want yeah. to know what's in the bottle. <laughs> I'm just th- I'm just thinking about somewhere cold, dark, that doesn't see light very often. I could store stuff in Justin's wallet. That would probably be a good place to be. I, I've heard no human hand has ever been near it, so no. I think that would be safe. No. <laughs> In terms of, uh, you, you say there about um, uh, mash bills, but the there's lots of receipts for coal, but that sort of tells its own story as well. Oh, of because, course, yes. You know, because obviously yeah. they were using coal direct fire. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of... Oh, that. yeah, completely. And I mean, for, for the vast majority of, of the running of the historical distilleries in Ireland, and certainly in the golden age of Irish whiskey, about the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, it was pretty much uh, coal driven. And that's one of the reasons why you tend to get distilleries in Ireland being based, historically now, being based in urban centres, um, because it's about 
certainly about getting your product out and being able to distribute it, but it's about being able to get the raw ingredients to yeah. create your product in. And coal would have been so necessary. Yeah. Um, just to kind of give you a picture in Middleton, in old Middleton distillery where I'm based, um, the largest pot still in the world, which is still the largest mm -hmm. pot still in the world, was erected there in 1854 by the Murphy family who ran Middleton Distillery. And it could heat up to 30,000 gallons of liquid. And it took four tons of coal a day wow. to do that. Wow. So that's a lot. And Middleton Distillery is located near a natural harbour. It's called Balnacurra. It's less than two kilometres from the distillery. And that's where the coal will come in from. Yeah. And it's the same with Bow Street. It's a stone's throw from the River Liffey which was a huge port. So it would come up along the, uh, the Liffey and it didn't have far to go. And the same with the um, city centre distilleries in Cork, uh, the historic ones, North Mall, Hewitt's, all of those. Again, near where you can get in your raw materials. People think that it, it's so important and it was, you know, yeah. to be near the barley fields. But equally, unless you can heat your still, your barley isn't going to do you much good. No, uh, they, in terms of even... Um doing your maltings and stuff, you know, you need, yeah. you need, you a, actually, you need yeah. a space. And there is a huge amount of infrastructure involved yeah. in a distillery. And that's as true for a hundred years ago as it is today. Yeah. And distilleries, what I find very interesting about them is they don't exist separate to the community that they're located in. Yeah. Um, the employment is, is one very strong connection, but it's all these other things. It's the people employed on the horses and carts bringing your coal in. It's uh, the farmers bringing the barley in. It is the army, the small army of craftspeople that you would need from yeah. coppersmiths to blacksmiths to harness makers, carpenters, coopers. There's a whole infrastructure and there still is today, probably possibly a few more environmental engineers today than there used to be. But it's a few, still... A few more health and safety army. executives. A few of them. <laughs> now, you're talking about the team of people. Um, whatever you're, the, 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 the logistics of buying stuff these days, you're just saying an email yeah. and an invoice and all that, all of that... Back oh, the no, 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 no. I don't know where you do your shopping. Um, it is still... this. Almost the same. Um, mm -hmm. The only difference is years ago, you would buy from a lot of individual farmers. And yeah. today we buy from a centralized grain merchant. Mm -hmm. But the process is exactly the same. A um, hundred years ago, when the barley was coming in in a sack on a horse and cart, it was stopped at the gate. A sample was taken and it was tested. Um, primarily, they're looking for the correct moisture content because they don't want any fungus or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens today. Before it gets in the door, it is tested. Each batch is tested individually. So I, I think our barley buyer for a distillery from 100 years ago, he'd recognize the process. Yeah. He wouldn't know what the lorry was dropping it off. But and he might, he he might not understand the process. An Excel spreadsheet either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in terms of all the jobs, there must have been at times jobs that aren't necessary today. Um, well, I suppose so. One, one job that kind of leaps out to me um, from uh, the records that we have for the Powers Distillery at Chan's Lane, mm -hmm. they kept permanently on the payroll there uh, brickmakers. You wouldn't necessarily think that you need a brickmaker 
to the steel. But if you ever look at the historic images um, of the stills at John Street, you find they're, they're set in almost a brick platform. Yeah. And that's how they're designed. And when the stills would heat up, you had massive amounts of heat and the bricks shatter. And oh. Paris at that time was a global drink. It was being exported all over the world. Oh. So you're not going to stop production for the sake of a broken brick. So they kept full-time brickmakers on staff. So that's um, that's a, a, a trade set that we don't find at Middleton today. Brickmaker and bricklayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carol, uh, mm -hmm. does anybody ever come up out of the blue with a big box or a big bundle of stuff and say, here you go, I found this in my grandfather's shed when I was clear clearing it out? Well, actually, I've been very lucky um, with things like that. When I first started in the role about nine years ago, we put out a call uh, to employees um, because very often in a distillery, you, you tend to get a tradition of sons following fathers into work. Mm -hmm. And so it was to put a call out for not only current employees, but retirees to if they had anything that they thought, you know, that they'd like to see preserved to drop it in. So a lot of people did just that. So it was like permanently Christmas. You know, you <laughs> arrive into work, every a different box for you to open. And so I was very grateful for that. But um, back in the 1960s and the 1970s, when or two Dublin distilleries, the, the company I work for is Irish Distillers, yeah. and that was formed in 1966 by an amalgamation of Jameson Powers and the Middleton uh, Distillery, run by the Cork Distilleries Company. And production, as you may know, transferred to Middleton in 1975, and that saw the two Dublin distilleries closed. But they were chock-a-block with all these records. And because Irish whiskey had been in a slump at that point, yeah. Production was shrinking, which meant they were left with a lot of excess empty buildings that weren't really being used. So this is where the archives were kept. So and not thrown out, which is the main thing. Archives tend to be thrown out when people downsize or when they sell and, and move. Mm -hmm. So the records were there, um, but the company didn't know what to do with them, uh, as but knew that they were valuable. So the National Archives in Dublin stepped in and actually um, mined them and stored them until such a time as the company could build a repository. So the first year was all of that material coming back in, and there was 45 pallets worth of material. So I think, I think that was bones of four years. Wrap <laughs> <laughs> those and go through them. That, that, yeah, that's just a huge body of work, huge body of work. Yeah, but it was great because they survived, you know, um, which, which we were incredibly grateful for. Yeah, now, you, you did a tie-up with Ancestry. That's right. Um, the archive is an internal resource for Irish distillers. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is at the moment, it's not fully catalogued. Um, if you came in and you said, I need to see all the records relating to X, Y, and Z, hand on heart, I couldn't tell you that I was giving you all the records. Yeah. I just don't know yet because we haven't gone through them. We haven't processed them. So, um, but at the same time, I get a lot of external queries, especially genealogical. Yeah. And this was something that um, I was very passionate about because in Ireland, uh, we don't have a lot of official records. No. Our last census um, that is freely available is the 1911. I know that there's work at the moment to try and process the 1921 census. But anything prior to 1901 was destroyed in the four courts in 1922. Yeah. Um, you didn't have 
baptismal records till about the 1880s. So trying to find anything about your ancestors is quite difficult. So this body of records is a data set for that. So I really wanted to make them publicly available, but I wasn't quite sure how. And a colleague suggested that I contact Ancestry, who are the world's biggest providers of genealogical information. And they were just so incredibly helpful. Yeah. And what they did is they sent a crack team over who digitized in-house within the archive in Middleton, a hundred years of the wage books from Bow Street. Now that sounds, oh, just digitized. You know, they, no. <laughs> it's not that easy. And once you have an image, how do you search an image? You know, all of these are handwritten. Um, they needed all to be transcribed. Uh, the images needed to be cropped. There was about a year's work wow. um, in, in preparing them. And, but it was, it was so worth it. And they're available now on the Ancestry site. Yeah. So you can just, if you sign up with them um, and you have an account, you can log in. Now, if you don't have an account and you, you're just curious, if you contact me, because Ancestry have done all the hard work, I can look up a database, <laughs> you know? So it's been absolutely incredible because archival material is irreplaceable, as I was mentioning. Okay. So prior to Ancestry coming on board, if somebody wrote in and they asked about an ancestor or grandfather, I had to usually make a guess at the years that the person would have been employed and take down these huge ledgers that are physically very large. They're about mm-hmm. one meter um, in length and open each page and physically go through them. So not only was that hours of my time, but every time you're turning a page, you're damaging. causing to, you're damaging. So now because they have been scanned, we don't have to do that. And it's it's a lot easier to preserve the, the physical hard copies. Yeah. I I kind of had it in my head that they just scanned them in and they, they had some some Picture oh, Justin, Justin knows better than that. Yeah. And I suppose what I'd say to anybody, um, if you think about, um, even if you go look for a Word document that you created maybe three years ago, if you look at it on your hard drive, see if you can open it. Chances are you can't because <laughs> the software has moved on. Yeah. So you can spend an awful lot of money scanning everything. Somebody gives it to you. If it was a few years ago, they'd give it to you in a CD-ROM. Good luck with opening that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, it's not like you can put it on a shelf and say that job is done. Yeah. There is a, another body of work in constantly migrating the sort of material. So that's why when you have somebody like Ancestry who have a whole team of software yeah. engineers who are used to doing this, um, it, it's very, very useful because it is an entire skill set in itself. I suppose I don't give enough credit to this that people do these kind of things I, th- mm. I thought it was i thought it was basically pdf you know stuck on a photocopier i know and you're done <laughs> yeah 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 off yeah, for three no. weeks holiday you say you don't um an archivist doesn't really go through the records piece but you know it's a third party does that mm-hmm. but you you must have picked up on doing it for other people you know whenever people say i'm looking for my grandfather you must have read some stories about people oh well so, so, well sometimes sometimes you have to read between the lines of a yeah record that's, that's what that's what we mean that's what we mean yeah that's yeah. what you're trying to get it and that's where you can't beat living memory and alongside the physical archive we also have an oral history program that i do talk to former employees and record their memories wow. because they tend to be a lot more colorful 
<laughs> than the um, you know the the official record. Yeah. And sometimes you just think that the only reason anybody came to work was to steal whiskey, like you know that there was literally <laughs> nothing else on the agenda for the day because that was the focus. <laughs> but um, there was a, a very well-known character in the Cork Distilleries Company, a man called Mr. Norbert Murphy, who was known mm -hmm. as Mr. Norbert. And he was the managing director for, for an incredible something like 70 years. Oh. And his motto was, we're not working in a lemonade factory. <laughs> and by that he meant, if you put temptation in front of somebody, don't be shocked if they get tempted. And, yeah. you know, and don't really, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. So interestingly, um, and talking to, our head cooper, Ger Buckley, he can tell you there's a hundred ways to get whiskey out of an oak barrel, none of which involves removing the bong. <laughs> you know? so there's a whole skill set there. But there were, and there were such clever ways. One very popular way, and this used to happen um, in all the distilleries, but I heard about it from um, a man who worked in John's Lane, the Powers Distillery, was he had what they used to call the hangman. And you take a baby bottle, empty baby bottle, uh, huh? conveniently with the screw top, if you can get it. And you just tie a little twine around the neck of the bottle and the other little bit, the, the end of the twine around your wrist and slip it up the sleeve of your coat. <laughs> and if you're coming along and you happen to spot a barrel, <laughs> down it drops, up it comes, screw on, <laughs> you're grand. In uh, Bow Street, uh, they had a little kind of... Uh, cubby area you know for a canteen with a gas cooker that had no gas because the teapot on it if you put gas under it that would have exploded there was new made spirit <laughs> completely 100% of the time in that teapot and one of the first things you'd be told is never light the flame under that teapot <laughs> so that was one in Middleton um, they took it even a step further and in front of what is now the Cooperage area that you can see if you visit Old Middleton it was an area known as the seven trees because there were seven trees growing there. And one of them had a hollowed out trunk and the guys would keep a bottle of milk of magnesia there, the, the bright blue bottle, you might uh -huh. remember. Yep. And of course yep. that was full of new egg spirit. <laughs> and you'd, you'd nudge your buddy and you'd just say, I'm off to the seven trees and up they'd go hand in the trunk. And if you were caught, it was milk of magnesia. You had oh. an upset stomach. Of course. You know? Of course. <laughs> I suppose that bright blue, you can't see really what's in it. So yeah. you can't see what's in it. You know, you take are you, you know, take the man at his word. <laughs> now again, I'm talking historically. <laughs> oh yes. I remember I remember hearing about a story of uh, a lady I know she lived up in Inverness and the, they used to be bringing from, from space just to come sort of through where she was and stuff. And uh, she says that there was guys just to get a wee drill and drill up and take a cast. Out pop this wee thing. They filled their bottle and then they put matchsticks in to to, to yeah. store it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they just get very picky. <laughs> that cast rotten money. Another one. Yeah, you know, know. They, they were able to go through all these casts. They said it was just awesome. They just how quick they were able to do it. You know? Well, you you would have had connoisseurs who were drinking the finest of spirits. <laughs> Yeah, you know? they were finding the best of stuff. They were complaining whenever it wasn't good yeah. enough. They yeah. threw it away and stuff. Anyway, yeah. now. In terms of other bulks of work, you're talking, I mean, the Ancestry database that's out there mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. is there more of databases yeah. or data sets coming out? Yeah, um, we, we've got plans for that because as I go through the collection and I can say definitively, 
that's what has survived of X or Y, um, then um, I'll involve Ancestry again. And yeah, we certainly have some in the pipeline. So watch Brilliant. this space. Brilliant. Now, anyone who does the, um, the, the the tour in Bow Street gets to hear your, your lyrical voice coming out about the, uh, the time you discovered the barley corns. Oh, th that that was absolutely incredible! You sure know, was. after after months of trawling through sales reps' expenses, gold receipt, gold receipt, gold receipt. Um, what what you're referring to there is a notebook from 1826, and it's the handwritten notebook kept by John Jameson, the son of the mm -hmm. founder of Bow Street, so John Jameson the second, and he was a hands-on distiller, and he was recording the daily mash bills for Jameson whiskey. Now, this is something that uh, when we have new entries to the company and they come down to the archive and you're trying to tell them a little bit about the history and the heritage of Jameson, to have that physical link, yeah. you know, that you can look at the handwriting of John Jameson and his mash bills. It, it's just, it's a very emotive thing. Yeah, um, so this is obviously a very, very precious notebook. Um, and when I came across it, it was pretty much in tatters. The cover had come off. It, it wasn't in great shape. So I sent it to a paper conservator. We use um, the services of Paul Curtis, who's based in Muckers House in uh, Killarney. He's an absolutely fantastic paper conservator. So I sent it down to him for repairs. And as part of that repair, he took the binding off. And when he took the binding off, out of the spine of, of the book fell these little barley grains. <laughs> and they were trapped. When John Jameson closed this notebook, shoved it in his pocket, he trapped the actual barley that was making Jameson whiskey in 1826. That, that, Absolutely that. amazing. It got to 200 years ago. That's, that's incredible. It is incredible. And when I went down to collect the book, Paul almost as an afterthought said, oh, by the way... <laughs> I must give you this. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, you must. So uh, we have them and we're, we've currently partnered with a laboratory in France. And we're actually trying to get, I gave up two, two of the precious kernels. Um, we're trying to get uh, almost the DNA broken down uh -huh. to see what variety they were and to see maybe what's the closest modern equivalent, yeah. what's grown today that is like this. So uh, our master distiller, Kevin O'Gorman, is a complete history buff. He absolutely loves it. And this was very much his passion project. He really wanted to know about the barley. And um, mm -hmm. so you, you never know where that might lead. Yeah, what's that space, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, the, the, you referred to that book. I mean, that book, it's a, a museum piece, essentially. You know, absolutely, that, yeah. That's really, yeah. I don't want to say, but that's really... The, belongs in a museum now it has the mash bells and the day-to-day -day running of of the distillery mm -hmm. um the thing one of the the attractive things about whiskey is you do have this sense of history and heritage and, yeah and yeah. To have to have that physical record can we see something in the future where they're bringing back some of the mash bells that he used at the time is that is that maybe for the company well, at some point I suppose never say never um but what tends to happen is the company and the distilling team and the blending team, actually, they, they use those as inspiration yeah. because it, it's not so much about recreating the past because you can't. 
you can never recreate the past. Uh, the equipment is different. Uh, standards are different. Standards of hygiene are different. <laughs> there, there might be a signature taste or flavor from 100 years ago that you really don't, really yeah. don't yeah. want to delve into. Yeah. Um, so, so you never really, truly can recreate the past. But you can use it for inspiration. And that's what the team in Middleton use a lot. You might have seen recently there was uh, the reintroduction of a Jameson single pot still. Mm-hmm. And again, that came out of looking at the record and seeing what well, what was Jameson famous for? What, what made its whiskey great yeah. at its height in the 1880s? And of course, it was single pot still. Yeah. So the team said, well, why don't we create this for the modern era, for right now? Yeah. What would a Jameson pot still taste like? right now so they did come to the archive they did look at the mash bills and the design team looked very closely at all labelings and you can see there's there's a homage to the old labeling on on the modern bottle um but it it's never so much about recreating but it but it's causing a springboard and also what i think that it gives the distilling team is a sense of their place in history and gives them a sense of continuity Mm -hmm. that they're they're the here and now but there was a past and there will yeah. be a tomorrow. And it's about maintaining standards. Yeah. You know, Irish whiskey was always a byword for high, a high quality product. Yeah. And it's about maintaining that for the now and for the future. Yeah. I mean, now with this, I mean, the huge renaissance in Irish whiskey that, mm-hmm. that is happening at the minute and led primarily by, by, by Jameson. I mean, mm-hmm. Jameson... I've heard recently someone saying, "Really, there's two categories of Irish whiskey: you've Jameson and everybody else." And that's there's there's a lot of truth in that. Um, with it, the new Renaissance, historically, do you see the the records going up and down? You know, the amount of oh yeah, 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 good, good times, bad times, good times, yeah. bad times, and historical events in Ireland. You know, you know, the War of Independence and and and. and the establishment of the free state and outside influences having an impact on well well, this is the thing that we mentioned earlier the distilleries didn't operate independently of the communities they were located in or the political circumstances of the day and i think from the earliest records i have almost on an annual basis it's a deputation to the government giving out about the amount of tax on whiskey and 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 rightly so and rightly so and rightly so (laughs) be very rightly so but they they obviously didn't get very far because they were still giving out about it um so so that's been a very uh, consistent theme is um the, the taking of or the addition of an awful lot of extra money on a bottle of whiskey that you know inevitably as the consumer is um targeted at but exactly to your point there's been a lot of ups and downs and external factors yeah. influencing irish whiskey because when you look at it the product itself kind of remained unchanged mm-hmm. for, for many, many generations. And as I mentioned, it was something that was associated with, with luxury goods, with prestige and with premium. But if you fast forward to the 1950s and 1960s, people say Irish what? You know, all that stuff yeah. that, my, that your man sitting in the corner there with the flat cap and the Jack Russell, mm. that's what he's drinking. Yeah. Um, and that decline came about completely because of external factors, one after the other. And it starts with the First World War because Irish whiskey was was an export-driven item. It was sold all over the world. Um, I often mention, as I go through the archives, we have a lot of what's called label books containing all the labels for 
the different territories because then as now you need different there's different legal requirements yeah um and i have a jameson label from about 1910 for honolulu <laughs> you know they're selling enough that they need a specific label for honolulu you wow. know so i think that really shows you the global um aspect of it but so an island is an island mm-hmm. and if you're going to get it off the island it's going to be by boat so the first world war um had saw a lot of submarine activity around ireland yeah. and the sinking of merchant shipping and the absolute stopping of exports yeah so and that the distillers have no control over that whatsoever. And in looking at the distillers' ledgers for Jameson in particular, as the First World War comes to an end in 1919, they're thrilled with themselves and they write, we had the best distilling season on records. The equipment (laughs) is working perfectly. The barley was great. Everything went and they had their largest yield. And that was the year, of course, that saw prohibition being brought in. Another external factor that they have no control over. Um, That's followed then by a trade war with Britain, with the United (laughs) Kingdom, which, you know, we we tend to think of in terms of, okay, that's just trade between Ireland and Britain. But it wasn't. It was with the British Empire. That's about a third of the globe at that point. Absolutely. So that meant trade gone with India, trade gone with Australia, trade gone with New Zealand, Canada. They just lost America and now they're losing all of these. That's bad. So, but you know, they grit the teeth and they put the head down and they stay true to their product. Now they, they try other things. They, they need income because they're not selling whiskey. So in the 1950s, in the 1940s, 1941, you see the introduction of cork dry gin for the first time Mm -hmm. by the cork distilleries company to try and generate some income. Um, Powers opened a gin still in the 1950s in John's Lane, again, trying to get in this extra income. But um, you, of course, had the Second World War (laughs) and then you have economic recession after war. So really, by the 1960s, they're on their knees. And you see so many distilleries have just shut. They've just shut because the market wasn't there. But again, none of this was in the control of the distillers. So at the moment, we're living through extremely unsettled and strange times. But if you stand back and you look at the last five, six hundred years, these are things like this has happened before. It's not 100 years since the great Spanish flu epidemic. You know, people lived through what we're living through now and realized that opening a window is a good thing. (laughs) And, you know, that that kind of memory seems to got forgotten and we all wanted to live in very sealed houses. But a good breeze (laughs) is no harm. And you, you have all of these. And it's I think it's your resilience. And a lot of that will be belief in the integrity of your product. Yeah. If, if you believe that the product is good enough to, to, to last, then, you know, it probably will. One, one, of the, one of the things that Irish whiskey suffered from in Prohibition was because it was seen as a sign of quality, mm. the, the bootleggers were making Irish whiskey. Absolutely. And labeling it, labeling it they were making gut rope, being yeah. basically industrial alcohol with a drop of water on it and colouring and yeah. labeling it as Irish whiskey. So the reputation of Irish whiskey in, in the state huge plummeted. Uh, not not only with the states that dent went yeah. worldwide, um, and and that's I think that's such an important point. Irish whiskey was traditionally more expensive than Scotch or mm-hmm. bourbon, so when the uh, moonshiners create their rock gut, they slap an, a label saying Irish whiskey on it, yeah. 
and because they can charge more, basically. Yeah. So for generations of Americans, they, they taste this absolutely horrendous concoction. And that's where you start hearing, I don't like whiskey. It's fiery. It burns. Yeah. Well, that stuff did. You yeah. Know? But that's not Irish whiskey. No. Um, but the, the legacy of that is an absolute almost fanaticism now about maintaining standards, mm -hmm. standards of quality and standards of taste. Yeah. Because we don't want that to ever happen again. You know, wherever you are in the world, it doesn't really matter which brand of Irish whiskey you're drinking, as long as it's an Irish whiskey. But as long as it's a good one, you know, as long as you, you can say whether you like it or you don't, that's a matter of taste and preference. But d please don't be able to say it's bad. <laughs> no, no the, I mean, the, the quality of Irish whiskeys these days is mm. superb. T tell me this: When does when does current commercial in information become part of the archive? Because I see those records go up to 1969, but mm -hmm. you know the introduction of uh, the internet for marketing—that's going to be part of the archive at some point Absolutely. in the future. Absolutely, and in terms of Middleton, uh, the huge expansion back in 2013, the building of the Garden Still House—you mm -hmm. know—that's a huge, important date to remember. And I, I genuinely say this to a lot of the new entrants in the Irish whiskey scene, a lot of these startups, um, you're creating your history right now. So, so think about the preservation of that. What day did you actually start? You know, was it the day that you bought the land? Was it the day that um, you paid off the bank? Was it the day that you started distilling? Those dates are important. And it's as important to celebrate a five-year anniversary, a five-year milestone, a 10-year as it is 100 or 150. Yeah. So to everyone out there, I would say just give somebody the responsibility for just compiling and keeping all of these. Because otherwise, oh, so-and-so does that, so-and-so, you know, yeah. collects photos. So-and-so will be gone. You know, so-and-so will have moved on and uh, maybe taken their hard, hard drive with them. Um, just just think about that. You know, you, you don't have to be 200 years old to have a history. Yeah. And you are creating your history every day. So um, the archive is expanding here in, in a different way in that um, there's an awful lot of more bottles. There's an awful lot more product <laughs> that they seem to be coming in the whole time. And of is, course, there, is, there, is there anything missing from the archive that, that you yes. think should be there? People. Um, if, if I could trap holograms, I would, because what I'm always fascinated by is not the volumes, you know, that are produced. It's not, oh, we took an X amount of barley and we produced Y amount of spirit. You know, that that's interesting and it's very, very significant. But I like to know what was it like to work there? You know, what was the banter? What was the conversations? Uh, who were the people? Who were that? What was their names? Yeah. So I suppose that flesh and blood I'd love to hear voices, I think. Yeah. You know, the, the, but you can't. You just you can't. can't. No. The, the, uh, I, I did my family tree a few years ago now, and it's one of the most rewarding things you could ever mm. do. You know, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you saw family, you tell family stories, you, 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 you know, you find out things about yourself that you didn't really know, these different connections. Yeah. And you, because of the, the nature of what you're doing and at Jameson, you must be facilitating that for, for lots of people all around the world. Uh, yeah, and like that is an extremely rewarding thing to be able to do. And that's why I was so anxious to get public access to the employee ledgers and to allow people to search them. 
And you just you just hear fantastic things. I remember about three or four years ago, I got a phone call one day, and this woman who she just randomly rung the, the switchboard of Irish distillers, our head offices up in Dublin and Simmons Court, and she just rung. Um, she her grandfather had worked for Jameson, and she just wondered was there any record of him. So they put her through to me and she was the most lovely woman and her mother had been widowed quite young and the family had gone back to live with her grandfather who was working in Bow Street and he lived in a Jameson house when the house is provided by the distillery and she had just such vivid and warm memories of both the man and also the whole ambience. And he, he seemed to be a very indulgent grandfather and he used to bring home, there was two little girls in the family, he would bring home a long stave from one of the big uh, port butts those are the largest barrels you could get and the two little girls used to have a seesaw out of it <laughs> and that's what they use seesaw on but she she was telling me about her grandfather and he worked in the spirit store uh, he was a clerk and it was his job to record barrels in barrels out volumes in volumes out if, if he was around today it'd be an excel spreadsheet that he'd be working on but he was absolutely besotted with animals he loved animals and of course there were stables at Bow Street and he would pop down every day in his lunch break to say hello to the horses, you know, scratch your nose, bring a carrot, bring a heel of bread. And he worked for an incredible 57 years at Bow Street. Wow. And when he died, they brought the funeral cortege past the main entrance and they brought all the horses out to say goodbye to their old pal, you know. I, I just think that's that's lovely. And so to have that lady ring up and be able to share. You're going to make me cry. You're going to make me cry. For God's sake, Carol. I know. We, we forget the human element, these human yeah. beings involved in, in the in the making of all of this. And they still are. I, I, they are. I, I, just the whole the whole process of the whiskey and the people that make it and the, and the historical aspect. And I, whiskey does that in a way that mm. no other spirit really does. But you could possibly argue rum to, to a little bit. But there's no other spirit really does it the way whiskey does it. And the fact that you have this body of work that seems to be constantly being updated and evolving yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Um, it's such, it's, it lends itself so, so well to the whole story of Jameson. It certainly does. And it, it's something that you can talk about whiskey while having a whiskey. It's quite nice. Yeah. It's quite and, nice. you know, and everyone, you know, you can you can sip from the same bottle, but everyone will get something individual. Yeah. And everyone has individual associations. Maybe the first time that they drank a whiskey, the first time they went to a pub, the first time they were brave enough to have a drink in front of their parents. <laughs> and uh, you, you have these lovely memories. And it's a very, as you say, it's a very evocative drink. Yeah. It really is, and and it's so so associated with place and time, yeah, uh, and, and and which is basically your history, and yeah, carries on. Um, now, in terms of your involvement in in going forward with with mm -hmm. the archive, um, is there any records externally that you haven't got that you possibly would like to see involved in the in the archive, or um, is there anything that you would if anybody has any stories, do you want them to get in touch with you or anything like that? Oh, um, people are so good at about sharing stories and photographs, you know, um, because uh, <laughs> for the archive, is, is you can imagine, it's heavily used by our marketing teams because they want to share what is a very, very interesting story. And yes. uh, consumers really like knowing more about where their whiskey came from. Um, but you often might get a marketeer and I'll get an email saying, hello, um, send us photographs you know from 
Bow Street in uh, the 1850s or 1860s. And after you explain why that's not possible, <laughs> um, you then have to go on to explain people didn't take photographs. You know, nowadays we have things like product launches and events and retirements. You'd have staff functions and photographs are taken. To make whiskey, you don't need to take a single photograph. No. So they didn't take them. Like, it's it's very rare. So we have some, luckily, um, um, generally all around kind of 1900. I think somebody must have got interested in photography at that point because there's a lot, thankfully. But within family collections, you often have a snapshot of somebody got a camera and they came into work and, and they took a snapshot. So getting things like that exter from external sources is very useful. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think the whole project's end endlessly fascinating. Um, the, 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 the marketing department are using this, obviously, as you, as you mm -hmm. say. And that, that's to emphasize the whole family, the whole history and of the and heritage of the brand yeah now were jameson good to work for back in the day um they were they were um they were um a jameson job would have been one of those jobs that you you'd be thrilled if your son came home and said mm -hmm. i'm starting work in bow street and um I suppose anybody watching this would be saying, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? <laughs> but I, luckily, I've, I've got external validation. Um, the very famous whiskey journalist, Alfred Bernard, when he visited Ireland in the 1880s, writing his book, Whiskey Distilleries of um, UK and Ireland, when he visited every single distillery in Ireland, uh, at the beginning of his journey, he didn't really know too much about whiskey, so he'd, he'd chat about anything else. He'd be telling you the colour of the sky and <laughs> if a, a bird was chirping in the background. But he, he discusses the Bow Street Distillery and he mentions one of the things that people are telling him and that he can see with his own eyes is that Jameson have a tradition of when, once you begin to work for them, they'll keep you on for as long as, as, as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, this is in an era before old age pensions old age pensions only yeah. came in about 1908 yeah. so if you didn't have children or if your children had families of their own and you couldn't work there's no income there is literally no income you are relying you've no savings yeah. you'd be relying on charity or it's the workhouse so for an employer to agree to keep you on when you're well past your physical best is is something to be valued. And what the records for me show is that you might have started off your career hale and healthy, you know, shoveling coal or carrying sacks of yeah. barley. And as it would go on, you, you'd get a softer and softer and easier job. And the job for the very elderly was sitting in the gatehouse and just recording who's coming in and coming out, <laughs> you know, just putting a tick next to uh, you know, a farmer came in with a sack of barley. And Alfred Bernard describes this in his book, and he says he could see a lot of what he calls venerable grey beards <laughs> around the place. But it is it is a sign of, of the commitment to the yeah. employee that just because physically you're past your best, th there is an onus and a duty of care mm -hmm. that, that stayed with them. And there's actually, interesting another good example of that from the employee ledgers, and that's from uh, Easter 1916, yeah. where very famously the Jameson Distillery was taken over by the rebels. Mm -hmm. It's um, if you know Dublin, it's located uh, just above uh, the Keys in 
and in between the river and um, military barracks, so and next to the forecourts. So it was actually quite strategically placed. So the rebels had put barriers at the top and the bottom of Bow Street, and uh, they literally took over the distillery. Now, it was actually um, a weekend, so there was no distilling going on, so no harm came to anybody. But they held it for a week, which meant that obviously no employee, no staff member could come in and there was no distilling done. Now, in law, you don't pay somebody at this time if they don't turn up. I mean, that's it. It doesn't matter what the reason is. You're paid if you turn up and you're paid for the hours you work. And that's that. And the most famous example of this is the Titanic. Mm -hmm. And of course, when it famously went down, for the surviving employees, their wages were stopped at the moment it sank. Yes. Can you imagine? I mean, the absolute beauty of it, <laughs> that you survive this horrendous experience and, you know, <laughs> you, your job is gone and you, you suffered incredible trauma and you go in and they say, well, we're not paying you for Thursday no. because the ship's sank. Listen, I would love to be on a cruise liner that sank because you get the guaranteed <laughs> £75,000 payout then immediately. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's different times, but for Bow Street in 1916, when nobody could come in for a week and now there was terrible violence on the street. Mm -hmm. People were witnessing friends, neighbours being savagely attacked, beaten, a highly traumatising experience. Now, to be added to that, the fear of losing a week's wages, that means, you know, that's the rent. That's yeah. important. And on the employee ledger, ledger, there's just a little note in pencil. And it says, owing to rebellion, all employees paid in full. They just said, whatever. We're yeah. just paying everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I think that kind of shows the standard and the integrity and the type of employers they were. And many people would have been employed. Uh, it was, it, um, historically, uh, distilling was quite seasonal. Mm -hmm. So the barley harvest would happen in late autumn. And so the busiest time is winter. So at the height, you'd have around 250 men employed. Mm -hmm. And then that would ease down to maybe 150. To say 150 full-time employees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you would, for a lot of a lot of skilled craftspeople, they would move between the different industries and employers in that area. So you'd have Coopers working for a few months or a few years in Jameson, and then they pop up over in Guinness. <laughs> and again, different times, different seasons, you might need extra men at a certain point. So you'll find that, that especially amongst the very skilled trades, that they move between uh, companies quite a lot. You have you have the the archive for Pars, Jameson, and uh, the two and Jameson the Distilleries Company. No, uh, just Bow Street. Just Bow Street. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you, you have. Is there a difference between how people thought of the company or treat it and and how they did things? They each between, each, between each one, yeah, uh, each one has its own personality. Yeah, you know, they they really do, and um, it's kind of very hard to distinguish between them. But each one evolved their own system of doing things is, mm -hmm. is uh, probably the safest <laughs> way. <laughs> I believe there's some sort of legal... Back in the day, there's some legal <laughs> issues there. <laughs> oh, they, they, they had their own way of doing things. <laughs> All right, okay. Okay. Now, Carl, I, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And um, 
Well, I have to say thank you just to know for the technological support. <laughs> Even uh, though we, we mocked you the whole way through, we're very grateful no, for it. No, no, I, I'm used to it. It was out this morning, Philman, and uh, well, I, I always get mocked, but it's uh, about making people, getting the best out of people's performance. You see, you always want to get yourself the biggest microphone that you can, you know, or something like that. <laughs> the sm- and the smallest headphones. The and, tiny the smallest, headphones. Yeah. and the smallest the, headphones. The cheapest headphones you know? work. But Carl, listen, yeah. honestly, I, I, I'll catch up with you again at some point in the not too distant future whenever we've got more to talk about as you thank you very much for having me as you pull out more and more and more stuff that people just don't seem to lap up um thank you very much you're more superb stuff superb stuff